You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Film is not an immediate art form. Production can take weeks or months or more to complete. The cinema of 1969 reflects the turmoil of 1968, the political upheaval and protest that went on around the globe. From the Tet Offensive in January of 1968, the general strikes of France in May 68, the riots that ravaged America from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Kansas City throughout the spring and into summer, political crises in Poland, Pakistan, West Germany, Scandinavia, Czechoslovakia, Spain, Italy, France, Brazil, and the UK and Yugoslavia. If 1968 is the year that shook the world, then the fallout of that year should be writ large on the silver screen in 1969. Throughout the year, we'll be looking at several films from 1969 and how politics, economics, religious, societal, and intellectual shifts in 1968 were reflected in the cinema of 1969. Join us, won't you? Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Ashew. I have one question for both of you. Is man truly a cow at heart? We uh, continue. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. If you're going to answer that. <laughs> I'm going to answer it. Mike's just going to ignore it, so sure. I'm being oppressed. We continue our examination of the films of 1969 with a look at Dariush Merjui's The Cow. The film stars Ezetola Entazami as Hassan, a man with a very high status in his village. He is the proud owner of the sole cow. When he goes away for a morning, his cow mysteriously dies, and the rest of the villagers conspire to cover this up by telling him that his animal has run away. Let's just say that Hassan doesn't take the news very well. We will be spoiling this movie as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Cow, pause now or forever hold your peace. I think it's pretty safe to say that this was the first time viewing for all of us, uh, and I'm just curious, Heather and Chris, have either of you guys seen any Iranian cinema before? No, I haven't. This was absolutely my uh, my first entrance uh, into Iranian cinema. You know, Mike, sometimes I wonder if you even need to ask that question. I don't even have a frame of reference for Iranian cinema outside of now this. I thought maybe you're a huge A Taste of Cherries fan. I mean, like, Iranian cinema was, like, kind of the hip thing for a little while there with, uh, 
I can't even remember the director's name, but he's made quite a few things and seems to get nominated for Oscars. But yeah, this is my first Iranian film, too. I've never really delved into that arena before. Yet here we are talking about, once again, another new wave film, which seems to be a reoccurring theme. We've done one of the times uh, Heather and I were on a podcast together. We did French New Wave, uh, Celine and Julie Go Boating. A Mike White March on the Culture Cast a couple of years back was Japanese New Wave. It's all about New Wave, man. Well, it's where the fresh ideas come from for me. I mean, we could be talking about more classical thing, talking about a real strict melodrama or a musical or gangster film or something, but I wanted to see this movie. This was one that I had heard about for a long time, but had never managed to sit down and see. I, it was so fucking depressing. This movie was so depressing. Boy, and that's saying something. <laughs> that's saying something considering, you know, the current socio-political climate. But you're completely 100% right. But yet at the same time, it's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> maybe I'm reading too much into it. Never mind. I, I feel this movie, it's um especially for being like one's first kind of taste into a particular type of world cinema. Um, I'm glad you picked it. That's the thing I love about about you, Mike, and Chris, and about the show is that you're always you're never afraid to go for the deep cuts or the deeper cuts. And I'm a deep cut girl, so I love that. But this movie I'm not sure even reading about it or even listening, perhaps even listening to us talk about it can even prepare one really fully for the experience of this movie. It looks a lot like Italian Realismo. It looks a lot like The Bicycle Thief. But the one big difference for me is it looks better. It's beautifully shot and that all the actors are actually professional actors. This is not the director going out and just finding interesting faces and casting faces because all the people that were in this had had a career and would continue to have a career, especially the guy that plays Hassan. Though watching this movie a few times, I started to think to myself, I don't think that Hassan is actually the main character. I think that the guy who plays, in the version I watched, his name was Islam, but I think that it's basically it's spelled Islam, but it was with an E. When I watch it, but then in other cuts I've seen it is spelled with an I. I think he might be our main character, because really, he's pretty much the most consistent person. It's almost like Hassan is away from the town and we are concentrating on Islam and then seeing his reaction to his friend with what happens when he has this kind of break towards the end. I thought both lead actors were absolutely tremendous. And yes, um, Islam, which, oh, Lord help me, I'm going to try my best to pronounce his name correctly. Ali Nasirian? I loved him. I thought um, he brought such a kind of stoicism to his character. And in some ways, you almost feel like he's kind of maybe like kind of the closest thing we get to a moral center, I think, in the movie. He also kind of physically reminded me a lot of like a mixture between um, Antonio Mayans, who worked with Franco and a lot of other filmmakers, and uh, uh, Ruben Blades. I can see that. Yeah, which both both are great comparisons. Um as you know, like as far as like you know, if I was an actor and I was a dude, I would love, <laughs> I would love to be compared to those guys. I think the Italian neo um, neo realism 
is a great comparison, but yet it has its own flavor. Yeah, the cinematography, God, you could do a like a high-end Toshin coffee table art book with just stills of this movie. It's a gorgeous movie, but at the same time, I wouldn't even call it beautiful because this, there's stark beauty and then there's just stark desolation and isolation. Because even though it's like a, we're dealing with like a small village, it, it doesn't seem, I don't know, there's just like sort of a, an ugliness of humanity, of our own nature, I think, going on in this movie. You mentioned uh, the one guy, Islam, looking a lot like, uh, I used to say Ruben Blades, but now I'm very posh to say Ruben Blades. But Hassan, he looks a lot like Tom Conti to me when I was watching this. That's kind of a deep cut. Hopefully people remember who Tom Conti is. I do, and I can see it. His, God, his, Isatola's portrayal is like when we first see Hassan, he's very jolly and bathing his cow and making these weird, completely weird noises. I don't know if you guys, if that if that kind of hit you guys strange too, because he's almost making these weird like mouth noises when he's like petting the cow and feeding the cow and bathing the cow. Like it almost, if I notice I have Pac-Man noises, I don't know why it made me think of Pac-Man for some reason. <laughs> nervous immediately because anybody like who's like myself especially sensitive to seeing animals in movies and you're like you know it's a 60s movie (laughs) and you're like oh sweet lord what's gonna happen to this animal it's like Chekhov's gun it's Hassan's cow it's Hassan's cow he also does a good job of portraying someone who's also very clearly right at what I would consider to be the precipice of a breaking point because He's clearly obsessed with the cow to a point that is, I would say, not portrayed thoroughly unhealthy, but in a way that he's allowed himself to be insulated from the rest of his village because he's so obsessed with the cow that he almost is losing himself to the cow and like being around the cow and is mimicking the cow. And then once the cow dies... You know, obviously, the the full mental split happens so much so that, you know, he's literally thinks he's a cow. And I find it interesting because they, they sow those seeds very early on by showing, you know, that he is essentially right there at the edge of sanity and kind of mental stability. And all it takes is just the cow's gone. And I'm not sure them telling him that the cow died immediately would have changed anything. I think that you know, like you said, Mike, the main character in this film is not Hassan, very clearly. And the main character's not the cow, either. So, you know, like, the titles, the cow ends up being kind of a metaphor and a catalyst, as far as what happens to the cow. His performance, I think, super impressed me once he made that transition. Like, I thought he was good, but then, like, once he gets back from leaving the village for a few days, and his wife wails, she's like, what is he gonna do? Like, he loves this cow. It's his life. It's his everything. 
and he just ends up snapping. But the way that he did it, the way that this actor portrayed it was so, I would just say, innately intelligent and so effective because on the wrong hands, this could turn into like kind of surrealist comedy really fucking quick, you know, (laughs) like it could, it could make a huge tonal shift, but instead it's really just like, yeah, it's just the heartbreak of mental illness, but also mental illness being handled poorly by, you know, by a village that, I mean, they don't really know any better. Still kind of riddled with a lot of religious superstition, which I mean, a lot of places are even now. So I don't, I'm not saying that as a judgment statement. It's just kind of an observation. You know, the other thing that is kind of important is the quote unquote madman character is handled the exact same way that Hassan is. It shows, like you mentioned, Heather, that the village only seems to care when they're benefiting from what Hassan is bringing to them, which is milk and milk and that and I guess a status symbol that the village has a cow and that someone lives in the village with a cow. But at the same time, their treatment of that character is, I mean, you know, you see it at the beginning and you realize that anyone could be subject to that should their mental state, you know, in Hassan's case, degrade to the point of, you know, believing he's a cow. Yeah, because with that guy who, in the notes, I refer to him as the village idiot. They, they don't treat him well at all. They almost they set him on fire for a oh, while right at the beginning. I, yeah, I was like, what the fuck? And then at one point, because they're thinking that he's going to give away the secret that the cow is dead and that has run away, they tie him up in the um, uh, in a barn. Basically, they almost make him a cow as well. And, and so it's like these parallels between these two characters. And yeah, just to see how badly they treat him, I'm just like, oh shit, I hope they don't treat Hassan the same way once he loses his mind. And then it, I, I kept thinking, like, is he losing his mind or is he actually, and this is this is out there, so forgive me, but this is the show to do this on, is is throw these oddball things out there. Is he losing his mind, or has he been possessed by the spirit of his cow? I mean, were they that much in love that when his cow died, the spirit went into him, and now he's both man and cow? You know, there actually were moments where it's a, I thought, God, he almost, it's like the way he would look at them, and some of his cryptic statements once he becomes the cow... It's like he it's like he innately kind of knew something wasn't right. He's like, there's no way the cow would run away. I mean, both on a logical manner, because even that, which I'm Mike, I'm glad you got this character's name in the script. Safar, the, the dude in the hat, who's such a dick. I really want oh, I've I wanted to hit him so bad in this movie. He's such a worm burner. He's totally that kid in school that's like torturing, you know, tearing apart insects. And stuff, you know, just like, oh, this guy's no good. But, uh, but even he pointed out, it's like, a pregnant cow isn't just going to run away. But also just the fact that, yeah, I mean, Hassan has a bond with this animal. I mean, they even, there's even allusion to like, there's an amulet he bought for this cow. And so he knows. And that's the thing. I, I think even in real life, if you, if you bond with an animal, like, you know, you hear stories about how an animal will get lost from its owner and, and one will travel like so many miles to find them and, and find them somehow. I mean, that doesn't always happen, unfortunately, but it has happened. I don't know, but it just kind of breaks your heart even more, you know, also for his wife. Cause that's the thing, like Hassan obviously has no bond with his wife. Yeah. He doesn't even call her by her own name. He just calls her woman and she doesn't have a name on IMDB. It's just Hassan's wife. 
Um, and my heart broke for her, too, because she clearly feels bad. She clearly, and it wasn't her fault. I mean, and it's the thing, we don't ever really get any clear answers on how the cow died. I kind of initially was thinking, are we going to find out that, because um, they refer to these groups of kind of um, bandits, I guess, called the Baloris. I initially thought, is there going to be like a thing where they ended up killing the cow? Because, you know, we already have it established that they're stealing from the village and they're kind of menacing the village. And the village who's very religious refer to them as heathens and they have no God. And that's why they do this. But then, like, the Baloris come in later on looking for the cow. So obviously it wasn't them. And then I wondered, are we going to find out, is it Safar? Because there's this scene where you see him, like, where he's hanging out with the the man who's um, mentally disabled. And he hits, like, a he kills a bird with, like, a slingshot. And you don't really see anything graphic, but you to me, it was animated that he picks up the bird and just rips it. Like, it wasn't even like he was going to eat it. Just, like, just maiming to maim. But then we, but we never really do find out, like, how this healthy, pregnant cow died and had blood, you know, was all bloody. Yeah, it seemed like it was coming out of her face. And I was just like, why is that? But yeah, it's even worse that she's a pregnant cow because here Hassan, I mean, he's, he's almost going to be like the proud papa when this calf comes along. And then that almost doubles his wealth, you know, that he has this calf now as well as the, the cow. So he can either sell the calf or keep the calf and, you know, have a, have two cows. Oh my God. It would just be so much wealth that he has because the next wealthiest guy is probably Islam and he's wealthy because he's got a cart with a mule. These guys are just bathing in riches. And there's one guy who talks about his sheep and how the Baloris take his sheep. And so he's just really distraught. And then sometimes it's like the Baloris, they're almost like these bookie men because you see them like the first time you see them, they're just these figures in the distance and then the way that they just, you know, turn and walk away. I was just like, okay, are these guys even real? They almost seem like a mirage. There's that one moment where they actually come into the village and are trying to take things. So I'm like, okay, these aren't just a figment of people's imaginations, but they, they stand for that. You know, they stand for being this other that they don't know and that they're just terrified of. And you feel so bad for these people in the village, but at the same time, it's like, are you really, should you really be that afraid? Or, you know, is there, are you just doing this in order to keep the band together? Feels a lot like the latter and less like the former. I mean, they do obviously come to the village. They do come to take the cow. So I guess you could make the case that they are as antagonistic as they believe. But at the same time, that could have been a feeling is mutual antagonism. And then they don't take him. Why didn't they take him? He thinks he's a cow. Just take him. He doesn't think that he's a cow. He thinks he's Hassan's cow. And the way that he talks like he's Hassan's cow. And then, yeah, when he is being afraid of the Baloris and saying, they're going to kill me. They're going to chop off my head. And it's just like, whoa, that was the moment for me when I was just like, this is really super serious. When he said that the character Safar had mentioned that. And so it's almost like he started, like Hassan's just in a frantic state where he's just starting to mimic kind of different things people have just told him, too. It's, you know, so who, but who knows? But yeah, that also does implicate, like, why would Safar say that? I mean, even though he's, again, a worm burner, <laughs> he's like, oh, he's God, he's just this terrible character. Um, but where would he, you know, I don't think he would just pull that out of his ass, like, clearly... Clearly something's bad. And, and the establishing shots of them, like, God, every single composition and scene and frame in this film is so purposeful and so tight. And that coupled 
and I don't know if this had the same impact on you guys as it did me, but, you know, there's long stretches in the film where there's no music. It's just literally just kind of like the natural sounds of sort of the desert area and occasionally the people. And I think when a film does that, it can have almost kind of like a claustrophobic feel because there's no aesthetic escapes of flourishing. You know, it's just, no, you are here with these people in this situation. Which is a smart choice. It doesn't make for the most comfortable viewing, but I think sometimes it's good to watch films that make you, you know, uneasy and make you feel like that's how it should feel. It's a sad story, you know? And I do like that the film is pared down. I really appreciate that this film is very pared down right to essentially the essential elements of storytelling because it feels like it's shirking conventions in that sense. Yeah, it's not like there's an extra subplot in here which is going to add up to nothing. It's not like we're seeing, I don't know, Safar trying to save money to go to college or something ridiculous. You know, it's just like it's this story and it's only this story, which then makes you think about what are all these elements of this story. It makes you really wonder about, you know, why is it this and why is it that? Why do they show us the scene of the mentally handicapped man at the beginning? being tortured by the villagers, oh, well, we're going to get that later on. It's not like they're just throwing things in here just to throw them in here. Everything has its purpose. Uh, And Heather, you were talking about the way that these shots are, and I love that the village, the setting itself is so important, and having these great like the little windows where people stick their heads through those, I think especially of like the old women kind of peering out of these, it almost looks like a skull because it's exactly. so white. Okay, good. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. You were not. I was I was going to say the same thing right there towards the end. I do love that little window too where the four men are sitting and the steam keeps coming out before the coffee will come out and the one guy keeps getting the steam right in the face. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that too. I also it made me crave some Middle Eastern coffee. Yeah, those old women, you see a lot of these old women throughout the film. And they're just, you know, like, there's not really any happy faces. Like everybody just seems with some exceptions, there a lot of villagers just seem to me kind of ghoulish. Like, I mean, even the children, because we don't even really see none of the kids really have a personality. We just see them kind of in a mass throng whether it's chasing this poor, you know, disabled man and torturing him, following. There's always lots of little herds because, you know, even when Hassan gets back, it's not just the chief and um, Islam checking in. It's like five, six other dudes, like Safar's over there. And it's it almost to me just seemed like just, you know, when people kind of rubberneck or get nosy about bad situations when it doesn't really pertain to them at all. You know, there's always a little bit of grease to that situation. Having this village be so oppressive is one of the reasons why this movie got into trouble when it first came out and why it was actually censored and oppressed. Um, Well, first off, they made them put a title card on to say that this was shot or set 40 years before it was actually set, which was contemporary times. But it was like, no, no, no. Iran has come so much farther than this. We are not these people and just trying to distance themselves from this type of village life. It's like, no, no, no. You have to say that it was uh, set in uh, uh, 29 instead of 69. (laughs) It's like, really? And then the other thing was, you know, that it wasn't this idyllic type of thing and that these people were so dour and stuff that actually the government was just like, yeah, no, we're good. You 
shouldn't probably show this at all. And it wasn't until they were actually embarrassed because the film got out and went to Venice and won a prize and actually started to show overseas and was winning prizes. And it's like, oh, well, I guess we should probably actually show this thing. Yeah, I feel like I also read online that the Ayatollah Khomeini was a big fan of this film, and that actually kind of helped helped it get kind of out there and you know preserved, which is um, which is insane. <laughs> it's um, I good for him for liking this movie. It's 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 brilliant. I never thought there would be a movie. Yeah, look at that—the art of cinema bridging us all together. We have we have something in common with the Ayatollah Khomeini now. The projection booth, watching films sponsored by the Iranian government. Which we literally can't say about any of the other episodes. Yeah, I don't think they're too big a fan of Solo, 120 Days of Sodom. <laughs> but they should be. Right. I think that was a Shaw's favorite movie. Uh, that and Water Power. It's like, oh hell yeah, I got my double bill, baby. I think that's just what kept getting me. It was just these... Just almost like, especially the kids running with the torches in the beginning. It's almost like something out of a Frankenstein film or so. You know, it's just the the angry villagers. And to quote Ronnie James Seago, when you listen to fools, the mob rules. And it took me a little while to figure out what actually happened at the end. I had to watch the, the end a few times. I also read about the end in an article and I was like... I don't remember that happening at all. And then I had to go back and rewatch it. I didn't realize that he, so they, they end up tying him up and they're going, it's the three main uh, male characters and Hassan. And one of them is Islam and they are going to take him to the city in order to get him some psychiatric help, which thank goodness that they're going to do that. But then it's, it's almost like this magical realism thing where it starts to, pour down rain and they're marching him or dragging him practically up this big hill that we saw earlier and he stops and he won't move and islam breaks and starts to beat him with a stick and basically treats him like an animal and doesn't treat him like a human being anymore and he realizes what he has done and just the look on his face is is incredible and then Hassan breaks and runs, and I didn't realize that he is supposed to have fallen off of the cliff of the mountain that they're on. That that moment in slow motion when he goes face down into a puddle is supposed to be basically at the bottom of the ravine. That That is him dying. I didn't get that the first time I saw this. I mean, I understood that he died. I just didn't realize that it was a cliff. I just assumed he just kind of finally lost it completely and just went no more and just took off and just kind of died of I guess falling off of a cliff makes more sense than whatever I was gonna say. And it's not the only one in this film I noticed that feels like kind of a Laurent like callback because you know when you have the whole scene where they're burying the cow and kind of throwing the body down I guess this old well and and that was hard for me to watch because it's I mean, it's, I think the animal was dead at least, but it's, you know, not pleasant, <laughs> a pleasant thing to see, but it's, you know, such is life. But, you know, you see, like, there's that slow-mo with the body, this poor, innocent, murdered animal, you know, going down, and then we have Hassan in a similar situation. There's also, like, a mirror image of the wailing, as, you know, you have his wife wailing early on in the film because of the dead count, and then later on we have the wailing of Hassan. 
We also have a few other instances of things that repeat as well, which are the fades to white. You know, very telling that it's not fades to black, but fades to white in this. The morning that he leaves, it fades to white. After the cow's been buried, it fades to white. And I think we have another fade to white after Hassan dies. You know, really these kind of like punctuation marks in the film to be like this. You should be paying attention to this. There's some finality to it. I appreciate, I mean, I appreciate that as, as, as the film goer here, because like you said, Mike, it's not a fade to black. And I feel like fade to black is kind of, I feel like it's overused as a cinematic kind of trope. I actually like the fade to white. I mean, the fade to white can be interpreted just as many different ways as the fade to black can, but I, I like the usage of the fade to white in this film. The film has a lot of kind of cool, like economical touches that aren't quite, I wouldn't quite call them experimental, but sort of border on them, but they're used very sparingly, which is kind of nice and makes them, I think, actually stand out more and makes a good contrast. Cause like even the opening like title sequence, you know, we have, it's basically an image of a son of a cow, but it's almost like done in, I don't know if they called it solarizing or solarization back then, but basically that similar kind of effect where he's like a negative or they're a negative, they're white and everything else around them is black. Yeah, it's really abstract. I love the look of it. Oh, it's it's so cool. It's so cool looking. And it also kind of is neat because, you know, the the you know, most of the film doesn't really look like that, but yet there are moments where you kind of have like the slow-mo and the dips to white, which make it visually, I think, even more kind of stand out from other films that you're used to seeing from any country. When you and I, Chris, watched the Japanese New Wave films, Almost every single one of those, maybe with the exception of Death by Hanging, were really super avant-garde, you know, thinking especially about, like, Funeral Parade of Roses. Especially Eros Plus Massacre. That sense of avant-garde is just so toned down in a movie like this. It's Even though it is, you know, considered the Iranian New Wave, it is such a different cut of new wave and that's why i was saying it felt more like an italian thing where it was more sparing but you do have those touches the the touches that heather's talking about you do get those sprinkled in there and they kind of call more attention to themselves themselves just because they are used so sparingly and I, i i was just like okay that's nice that it's not really super cut crazy or we're gonna run the film backwards or anything it's just these little like yep slow-mo fade to white i think the most avant-garde it gets is those opening credits which is cool but right up to like but also just that that weird sort of that haunting ending shot oh my god which is why um where i kind of like which i guess i mean i don't know i actually prefer chris your take you're in mike's take of the ending because we need some happiness <laughs> in this world and in this in the universe of the cow so like because the closest thing i feel like we get to a subplot in the movie is there is like a character of one of the villagers sisters who is kind of hiding out one guy who the whole thing is like they're supposed to say this character he's he's the one that's going to get Hassan and or going to look for the cow he's going to get the cow and so she's having to hide him out but she's clearly kind of sweet on him and then they end up getting married but by the time we see like the whole marriage ritual I'm assuming that's what it is we know Hassan's dead and we see Islam leaving with the the donkey and the cart and we pretty much can assume he's going to get the body and he sees it and he sees his wife up on the roof. And I'm pretty, I'm like 95% sure the woman on the roof is, is Hassan's wife. 
Okay, so it's the girl who's getting like threaded before her marriage. Yeah. Okay, and then it's Hassan's wife up on the building where it has the end title, which leads me to believe it's like, well, what's she going to do? Is she going to jump off the roof? Right. And she she's going to come home with just even more news. Like, you know, and, and that's the thing. Like, this is, to me, that's why it wasn't a happy ending because it's like, well, you know, at one point, Hassan and his wife are like this couple, and like what's happened to them. Mm. And, you know, nobody in the villager, other than, you know, I mean, I think there's a few characters, Islam especially, who do care as much as they can, but it's such a brutal kind of existence, and it's such an oppressive kind of existence that I think things like kindness and, you know, empathy aren't really too welcomed, you know, it's, it's, there, there's a little bit of it, but even the chief who seems like a nice enough man, I mean, he's kind of clueless. Like, he's like, Islam's really the, the only one in there. And you feel for him because, you know, he's going to be forever haunted. Like, he's going to be the one that's probably, other than maybe Hassan's wife, burdened the most probably emotionally by all of this. That whole thing, too, with him getting the cart, because they made a point of saying, we can't take him in the cart. I can't remember what the reason was, but it's like, we can't take him in the cart. But then he comes back for the cart, and it's like, so now they're getting that for Hassan's body. So you know, half an hour after this movie ends, he's going to come riding back into town with that body. This movie was kind of devastating. Yeah, there's a lack of positivity in the film that you try to look for. And you try to suss out the positivity in the film. And maybe the act of Islam at the end going and getting Hassan's body is kind of a way of saying, like, you know, I've made the mistake and here's how I'm going to own up to it. But it feels like a little too, a little too, little too late. I mean, they could have taken him in a cart and instead they walked him on foot. There, There's a lot of failings in this movie among a lot of the characters and... Like we mentioned before, Islam is the character who we essentially are given the ability to connect with the most. And it's a failing of his character. And unfortunately, that's kind of the reality of the film is the entire village fails the ones who are at risk the most. It is interesting that we actually have flawed characters because so many times in movies, our characters are just completely without any sort of blemish, you know, or they are 100% evil. But with this, you get these real shades of gray going on in this black and white movie that we don't necessarily see all the time, that we get to see that people have these real foibles. Even Islam, which I, that's the thing, like when he breaks down, ends up kind of beating Hassan, you know, it's like you you know, you hate seeing it because you like this character, but also because, but you get it because it's like, he's human, you know, and anybody kind of pushed to an extreme of stress. I think we all hope that we wouldn't act like that. I certainly hope I would never act like that no matter what, but it's hard to tell unless you're in that situation. So it's just, which makes it all the more sad, you know, it's, and everything has its place, I guess. But, you know, it's easier to watch kind of a more black and white film for a lot of people, because if somebody's an asshole, then you could just be like, yeah, forget that guy. He's a dick, you know. But it, when it's somebody you like, it's like, oh, no. But it also, I think people don't always like that because it makes them face their own humanity and have to face the fact, well, hey, you know, we all have flaws. 
And they're all moments where even the best person's going to have a bad day <laughs> or bad week or week, you know, year or whatever. It's a lot of heaviness. I kind of feel like it's very telling that, you know, when we see Hassan bring the cow back into the village early on, how he's real protective and doesn't want the kids messing with her, which given how these kids act, shit, I don't blame them, you know, because that's the kind of world. That's the kind of situation they're in. It's like this cow is like the only truly kind of innocent animal innocent creature and she's murdered with child hey, what 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 is what what more of a heartbreaking sacrifice can one think of well on that cheery note we're going to take a break and we'll be right back after these brief messages this is a bar of soap i know that you probably don't know what this is i probably you haven't ever seen one of these before but it is called soap matter of fact if you're sitting at home now you can maybe kind of repeat after me and say soap. Say soap. S-O-A-P. Soap. You people, you, your hands are so greasy and slimy. I mean, I, I, I don't want to shake them. You know, you ask me for an autograph, I'll sign you an autograph. But please, don't put out your hand and shake it until you can wash your hands. Now, this is what you do. Wet your hands, okay? Then wet the soap. Wash the soap, rub it on your hands, and rub it around, and your hands will get clean. Now, you ladies out there. This is a razor. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. All right, we're back and we were talking about the cow and um, we mentioned the black and white cinematography. I guess it was, I read a statistic in one of the articles that we had, which was like 95% of the movies in Iran were all shot in black and white up until like the early 80s, which just seems wild to me. I don't know if it was more of an aesthetic choice. I'm thinking that it was this whole idea of movies not being 100% real and trying to keep the realism out of movies, trying to make them almost like more distant so that it wasn't like this is a representation of real life because of the whole idea of like movies should be for, you know, we think they should be for entertainment. We also think they should be for art. And whereas in Iran, I think they were supposed to be for like social good and teaching lessons, which is such a different way to look at movies than what the way that we look at these. Well, isn't that the whole idea with New Wave, right? It's to enact change. I mean, it's to bring about some sort of put in focus a societal problem or something that needs to be changed. And, you know, you could, uh, you know, again, like Heather said, we could all use a little positivity in the world today. But realistically, you know, you look at this film as a parable for a lot of things. And it really is about society failing those who are most at 
risk for mental illness or illness in general. And that's kind of what the film, I mean, that's what the film is touching on. I mean, that that has to be what the film's talking about because it's, it's not even very veiled. It's quite overt in its message. Well, I find it very interesting that we're reading it this way because apparently at the time when this came out, people were reading this as this uh, analogy for uh, the oil that was in Iran and that uh, it was like the Shah being very protective of the oil and just like drawing all these different parallels between different characters and different factions and were the Balori, were they, you know, the foreign powers, were they the United States trying to take the oil and all this kind of stuff. And then I read, read another article today where it's just like, yeah, people who read it like that were really missing out. And I was like, okay, you know, but I'm sure in 69, 70, 71, when this movie is getting out there, people were probably much more keyed into what was happening politically in Iran, whereas now it's like it's kind of behind this curtain for us a lot of times where we know some things, but we don't know everything. And, you know, it's not like Iran was as open as it was in the late 60s, early 70s, when they were trying to have this image of we are this modern society, we have come so far. And that's why they wanted to say, you know, the cow is set in a, in a distant time. We're nowhere near that anymore. We are much more modern. Look at our buildings. Look at our culture. This makes me realize how much I need to bone up on my I, my Iranian history. Like I, that's what I love about Danny to do stuff like this, though. Is that I find like getting into like certain types of foreign film makes you kind of like, whoa. Well, I love this film. I need to know more about this culture and about this history because I mean. And this might shock some of our listeners, but the American public school system is a little faulty. So, especially when it comes to world history. Oh, um, yeah. Well, especially Middle Eastern uh, history. Well, also especially when it comes to our own history. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. U.S. history in this country is more or less, unless you're operating at an AP advanced placement level, they teach to the presidents, and that's all they teach about, and that's fine. But it is a fa- it, it, it again, it is a failing. And it is a failing that we as Americans don't have more of a frame of reference for something like, you know, Iranian history or history in the Middle East in general. I bet most people in this country, if you told them point out Iran on a map, would probably point to Iraq or Saudi Arabia by accident. Quite possible. I mean, heck, think about it. Even 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 our own cinema gets even small details about other regions in this country wrong. I mean, like any any film you see set in New Orleans where the locals talk with Cajun accents, it's not accurate. <laughs> you mean they don't all talk like that down there? They don't all talk like Dennis Quaid and the Big Casey. You know? <laughs> but I think that's kind of the beauty of getting, you know, doing what we're doing now and, and, and hopefully kind of, you know, anybody listening is turning them on to checking it out. Like that's to me, that's kind of an exciting as, as sad as this movie is. And we're trying, you know, we're not, we're never trying to be bummers. We're just being objective. The The bright side of it is it gets to open you to a new world and, and to make you more, I think, you know, kind of creatively inquisitive, which I think is always a good thing. That That's what keeps us evolving. You know? I mean, for better or for worse, me being, the oldest person in the room kind of thing. I do very vividly remember 1979 and the Shah fleeing and the Ayatollah Khomeini coming into power and all those things. And yeah, to your point from earlier, Heather, the Ayatollah liked this movie, so it's still with us today. It's not like it was banned from culture. So 
th- that was the whole, you know, that there are like these turning points in Iranian cinema. And one of them, I was reading this one article and it's like, okay, in the second period goes from say 69 to 79. And then when, you know, the, the Shah was dispo- deposed, then it becomes this whole other era of cinema. And then, you know, we go on from there and, things have to change because of who's in power, of course. And you get such a massive shift like that. I had heard about the cow. I had heard that it had made a splash in 69 and then doing more reading. It's like, well, this was one of three or four different films that changed the landscape of Iranian cinema. And so now like you guys, I'm like, Oh, well I would like to possibly know more about these things. Where, where, what are these other films and why were they so different and how did they affect things? So it's just, uh, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Oh, I was going to say too, um, I was doing some research on this was based on a series of short stories by Golem Hossein Saidi, I believe the guy's name is, who was both a psychiatrist, which is interesting because of the uh, mental illness that's portrayed in this movie. Um, he was a psychiatrist as well as a writer, and he did not get along with the um, the powers that be. And it wasn't the Ayatollah who he had problems with, but it was actually the Shah whose secret police kidnapped him and tortured him for a while until he was able to flee the country and move to the U.S. and then eventually to Paris. Well, let's not forget, for those of you that do not have a frame of reference for Iranian history, yes, in 1979, the Shah was deposed. But also, you know, Ayatollah Khomeini is no longer around, but they still have an Ayatollah in Iran. It is still a government that is run by the religion of the state. It is a state-run religious government in Iran. And so, for those of you who are wondering what the state of Iran is like now, and who the Shah is, the Shah was deposed by the, the religious uh, folks in Iran. So, And that's still the case. That has not changed. Um, and it probably never will. And some would say that the Shah was put in place by uh, the American forces. Who- sure, of course. And then there was a thing that happened a few years ago that you guys probably remember, which was they had elections and somebody won and they won the election, but then they didn't win the election. It was the whole Green Party thing where there were all of the people taken to the streets and they were all wearing green because that was the Green Party winning. But the uh, Ayatollah was like, yeah, no, no, you didn't win. Sit down. Just remember, folks. That's world governments. Not everyone lives in a democracy. People would say that we don't live in a democracy, but a republic, Chris. People would probably be right. Sorry to get on my soapbox. We were just talking about, uh, what was it, Chilean torture just recently on uh, the Knife in the Water episode. Here I am now talking about Iranian um, coups that were also set up by the Well, as long as you don't talk about the U.S. government, I think you'll be fine. Okay, that's good. You're not going to draw the ire of anyone calling you, you know... A political podcast. Too late. I'm personally looking forward to whenever we can cover uh, 1972's Bat Pussy and talk about the uh, benefits of socialism. We definitely got called out for talking about feminism and blood-sucking freaks. But I think the real question that we should all be asking is, is if the three of us got in a room together to talk about a Steven Seagal film, what could we mine there that would upset people as much as talking about politics on any of these podcasts seem to upset people as much as it does. It could be that I consider Steven Seagal to look like he's fighting, like he's sissy slapping. 
One could say that he he's a living insult to terracotta as a color. One could talk about his history of possibly being a woman beater. The fact that a late friend of mine used to call him Fat Dracula. What about the fact that he ruined Nehru jackets? I know, Sammy Davis Jr. made them cool. And then Steven Seagal had to come stink it up with his Drakkar Noir. And Fat Dracula. Fat Dracula goes to the moon. My, my late friend Scott, thank you, sir. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Um, also, Steven Seagal is a very conservative figure. Um, he also promote, like promoted, I would call, or at least others would call, musical rape in the form of his reggae album, where he actually speaks in a patois on some tracks. It's kind of, it's amazing in that way where, like, if you accidentally, like, hit yourself in the genitals really hard, and you're like, I didn't know I could know pain this intense. Thank you, body. <laughs> it's like that. It's like being hit in the crotch really hard by a large man with a bad spray tan, an even worse dye job, and a Nehru jacket. He might smell like corn dogs. <laughs> and in case you were wondering, Mike, that's how we got Steven Seagal into the cow podcast. Chris, you are a saint amongst men. That'll end up all on the cutting room floor. No! Oh, oh, oh. God damn it. In other news, Projection Booth Podcast subject to mass editing and censorship. More at nine. I love that Darush Merjoy, the director, is still with us today, and he is still working. He seems like a fascinating guy, and I really tried my best to get a hold of him. He actually was educated at UCLA, and he was in the film program, and he said, fuck this, and then he became, I think he went into philosophy, and then when he came back to Iran, he got back into filmmaking there and made like his first feature, which is a crazy James Bond ripoff, uh, <laughs> which I would I would love to see. Uh, it's called Diamond 33. Whoa. But then the other movies that he made, uh, Mr. Gullible and The Postman, and I I think The Postman is based on um, the play, uh, is it Wojciech? Holy shit. It's kind of out there. But yeah, he's still making movies. He had a movie come out in 2019. So he's still out there. And he's the, the, according to IMDb, the source of all truth in the entire world, he actually has uh, one that he's working on now called Mona. That is amazing. That makes my heart so happy to hear. Also, what a fitting choice for him to choose, because Wojciech is an immensely depressing play and the Werner Herzog adaptations. Yeah, this would be that this the cow and that would be a good double bill if you're just really wanting to swing from the rafters afterwards. But uh, but I love both films. Wojciech's one of my favorite movies ever. Um, But uh, it's no fun. But then again, half the movies I love are no fun. So it's it's funny. That's amazing, though. Wow. Dime, what was that movie? Diamond 33? Yep, Diamond 33. Oh, my God. What a world. You see, we were all getting bummed about the state of humanity. But we just found out the guy that made the cow made a James Bond ripoff. That's, a, that's awesome. Okay, life is a gift in a lot of ways. You're not wrong. I would agree 100%. I'm, I'm not sure if uh, James Bond, like, turns into a cow or starts making cow noises and eating hay in that film. If he doesn't, that feels like a missed opportunity. Lee Harvey, you are a madman. When you stole that cow and your friend tried to make it with the cow... <laughs> I want to party with you, cowboy. <laughs> the two of us together, forget it.
I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'm probably going to say it every time I come on your podcast. I am so thankful that you have me on these podcasts to really challenge my cinematic beliefs and my cinematic standing as someone who watches film because I know with absolute certainty that this is not a film that I probably ever would have watched if you hadn't asked me to be part of this podcast. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And yeah, I'm I'm glad that I kind of randomly chose 1969 as a movie year to do and saw this and said, oh, I got to check this out. And yeah, uh, we have probably gotten so many things wrong about Iran, but we're trying our best. And this was definitely new ter- territory for all three of us. So forgive us for not being completely versed in the cinema of this you know, really important region. But yeah, we're, we're trying out here. I mean, to be fair, the only other thing I know about Iran is that it is so far away. That's it. Uh, Was that a flock of seagulls reference? (laughs) Oh, Heather got it. Mike waited and asked the question. Yes, it is. I I was always more of a space age love song girl myself. But yeah, but Mike is correct. Yes. Pardon our uh, cultural, um, not ignorance, but lack of insight. I hope it's not cultural bias. I don't think that we're, we are trying trying to put down i mean i i'm definitely trying to raise up this cinema because i am really interested in seeing more of it and reading more about it just because it is something i have no clue about and i want to try to you know cinch up those areas where i'm just like total freaking american idiot well i'm actually surprised for myself personally that i've never seen any iranian cinema because growing up from third grade until now one of my closest friends is Iranian, and his family actually left Iran in 79 when the Shah left. So I'm surprised I haven't seen Iranian cinema just kind of rubbing off on me, which, God, that sounds so awful. Fuck. I think doing this, and I think all of us are approaching the same way, it's it's a it's a step into learning more about a culture and to a history, and the fact that we're even doing that, instead of, you know, there's so many films that people just tend to talk about over, I mean, even with foreign cinema, even with art house cinema, and I hate saying that because there are going to be big titles I love, but it's like, how many people, okay, yeah, we know about Godard's Breathless, well, what about Iranian cinema? You know, I mean, people know Kurosawa, but what about the Japanese deep cuts? What about, like, say, Suji Teriyama? Yeah, recently we did Fuego, like Argentina. We found out Argentina has this whole amazing history of cinema. And that's, to me, that's kind of the joy about doing the show. And I'm so glad, Mike, as our, as our captain, as our chief here, that you do this. And you create an avenue not only for, you know, film writers and commentators like me and Chris and so many others to kind of explore films that otherwise maybe have flown under our radar, but also to expose listeners, you know, and I love it. That's why I think a lot of people love the projection booth is because, you know, it's not just a, a podcast, another film podcast taking talking about the same hundred films that are on BFI's top list. And again, those are movies I love. And sometimes we have talked about this movies, but more often than not, you know, you kind of go for like the, you know, for the, the, what was it that Robert Frost, you're going for the path less traveled. <laughs> oh. And Mike didn't know that the Cow Podcast was also going to be Ego Fest 10. 
Oh, we'd still need to record two more hours. <laughs> We're going eco-fast levels, Let's baby. just praise, lovingly praise Mike some more. We love you, Mike. Oh, shucks. We love you, Mike. Chris, I'm so glad that you're always up for new adventures because coming July, when we dive headfirst into Cinema Novo and go yet into another new wave area, which is the Brazilian new wave, it's going to be fresh waters for me as well. So buckle up, buddy. I'm excited. Again, you know, you had such kind things to say about me on your last Ego Fest, and I appreciate it. And I, it, it really made me feel great inside to know that I am in the, the circle of people you consider as just like, he'll do anything for a dollar. I, I, I'll be that guy. I'll, yeah, I'll take a shot in the mouth for a hundred bucks. You know, I'll be that guy. I'll, I'll be the guy. I mean, I'll be the guy that people want to be there because that's because uh, it's like, you know, that's the thing. Like you said, Brazilian new wave. I don't even, I can't even fathom myself in July understanding what that is, but I'm excited. Yeah. And you know what, Heather, by the time you come on for The Line Has Seven Heads, the last week of it, Chris is going to be like, oh, well, of course, that speaks to the blah, 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 because we've learned that when we watch Black God, White Devil. I'm looking forward to it. Pro- professors, I'll be calling you then. Black God, White Devil. That's uh, that's a pretty metal name for a movie. God, I want that album. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. So I'm really sorry for all the trouble I put you it's to. No problem. Thanks again and goodbye. Who is that? It's the guy who stopped to help me. Yeah, flat in this. Can you believe it? I forgot to take it out. I drove all the way home before it hit me. Of course, I'm so stupid. <laughs> this time you have to have a drink. You know what Nietzsche said? Nope. We can never entirely possess the female soul. What is this? It's him. Who? The doctor who played Death and the Maiden. If you thought that you recognized him. Thought? You were blindfolded. The voice. His laugh. <laughs> I don't know you. I've never seen you before in my life. I don't know what it is you think I've done. This is kidnapping. This is assault. We're going to go to jail for 20 years. What are you going to do with him? I want him to confess. How can I confess to something I haven't done? You might kill him. We push him off the cliff onto the red car. We're still going to know it was murder. So what am I talking about? I'm telling you, it's him. He talked about science and philosophy. He liked to quote Nietzsche. Nietzsche? She's mad. She needs therapy. You are her therapy. I'm not crazy! Sigourney Weaver. Ben Kingsley. Stuart Wilson. Tell me, what can I say? What do you want me to say? If I'm guilty, you'll kill me. If I'm innocent, you'll kill me. I just want the truth. Death and the Maiden. That's right. We'll be back next week with the first entry in our Polish month as we look at Roman Polanski's Knife in the Water and Death in the Maiden. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Chris. So, Chris, what has been happening with you lately, sir? Uh, For myself, uh, still doing uh, the Children's Table uh, movie podcast, the Culture Cast. If you want to hear me talk about movies uh, that aren't this, uh, you know, come on down and and join me there at CultureCast.com. Mike, you and I do a podcast, I'm sure you know, called The Life and Times of Barney Miller with a man with another famous amazing mustache, one Hal Linden. Boy, if that thing doesn't get you going, I don't know what would. We also do another podcast called Dreams for Sale, and I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about a podcast that we're doing, my friend Jess Byard and I, 
we're starting a true crime podcast, which is pretty much outside of the wheelhouse of anything I've ever had anything to do with. It's going to be true crime, horror, spooky stuff. It's called Stories We Tell, and that podcast comes out April 15th. You'll be able to find it that morning on your morning commute or your morning not commute, probably, at uh, the rate we're going here. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, casualty underscore Chris. Very cool. And Heather, what is going on in your world? Well, I uh, I just finished the much belated and hopefully somewhat anticipated uh, latest issue of the Mondo Heather newsletter. So if you're curious about what I'm up to, as well as assorted uh, brain ramblings, you can contact me via my website at mondoheather.com. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.